Hello, my name's Craig Barton, and welcome to the Tips for Teachers podcast, the show that helps you supercharge your teaching one idea at a time. Each episode, I invite a guest from the wonderful world of education to share five tips for teachers to try both inside or maybe even outside of the classroom. With each tip, the challenge is always to ask yourself, what would I have to do or change to make this work for me, my situation, and my students? Experimentation and frustration may follow, but hopefully something good will come out of it. Now remember to check out our website, tipsforteachers.co.uk, where you'll find all the podcasts, as well as links, resources, and audio transcriptions from each episode. But better than that, you'll also find a selection of video tips, some taken directly from the podcast and others recorded by me. Now, these videos could be used to spark discussion between colleagues, a departmental meeting, a twilight inset, and so on. Now, just before we dive into today's episode, a quick word from our lovely sponsors. This episode of the Tips for Teachers podcast is proudly supported by Arc Maths. Arc Maths is an innovative app created by teachers to help students remember all those crucial skills needed to succeed at maths. Arc Maths is built around research into the power of retrieval practice and spaced memory, sorry, spaced practice on memory. Here's how it works. Students crack open the Arc Maths app and are given a 12 question quiz with follow-up practice questions on anything they got wrong. But not just straight away, but the next day, three days later, a week later, and so on, until they have it secure in long-term memory. The more time they spend on the app, the better Arc will get to know your students and what they need. With no teacher input required, you can spend more of your time inspiring your students with new ideas. So check out Arc Maths, and remember that's Arc with a C, not a K. Okay, so back to the show. Let's get learning with today's guest, the wonderful Gemma Sherwood. Spoiler alert, here are Gemma's five tips. Tip number one, plan sequences, not lessons. Tip two, doing maths is not the same as teaching maths. Tip three, what you say matters. And in a big twist, tip four, what you don't say matters. And finally, tip number five, teach what you mean to teach. If you look at the episode description on your podcast player or visit the episode page on tipsforteachers.co.uk, you'll see I've timestamped each of the tips so you can jump straight to the one you want to listen to first or re-listen at any stage. Enjoy the show. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Gemma Sherwood to the Tips for Teachers podcast. Hello, Gemma. How are you? Hi, Craig. I'm good, thank you. How are you? Very, very good, thank you. Right, Gemma, for listeners who don't know, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, ideally, in a sentence? I am the Senior Lead Practitioner for Maths at the Ormiston Academies Trust, which means that I um, am responsible for uh, CPD and resources and looking after teachers across 40-odd schools. Wow, nice. Sounds like a dream job. Fantastic stuff, Gemma. Excellent. Right, let's dive straight in. What is your first tip for us today? My first tip is to plan sequences, not lessons. Oh, I like it. Right. Tell me more about this. Okay. So um, I probably started doing some kind of version of this maybe about seven or eight years ago now. um, And it absolutely revolutionized the way I thought about teaching because it changed the focus. Um, And for me before, my focus around what I did was governed by the time frame that I had. And in some schools, it would be 50 minutes. And in some schools, it would be an hour. And my thought would be, I have a fixed amount of time. 
what are we going to do in that time? What do I want to cover in that time? And the time was kind of the main driver of everything else. It was kind of the, the overarching constraint. So when I change to doing this process, it kind of flips it on its head because what I do now is I think, I need to teach certain things, certain ideas, certain concepts. I want my pupils to have certain types of practice. I want them to become fluent in things. I want them to be exposed to thinking in different ways about lots of things to do with maths. And now I structure what I do by thinking about that first. And I, I essentially, for a kind of a unit of learning, I have one massive long flip chart or PowerPoint and I just go through it but I mean that sounds like I'm kind of slavishly following it that's not the case what it means is I know key things that I want to do at certain times and if those things happen to go across the kind of now what I see as an artificial boundary of one lesson to the next then fine so I have no problem in something kind of being finished in the middle of a lesson and then we pick it up the next lesson because it's more important to me that pupils are exposed to certain activities certain tasks certain ways of thinking certain lines of questioning and the time frames that we have for our lessons are, are they just have to kind of, be, kind of be subservient to that really got it right the questions begin here, Gemma, because I've loads to ask you about this. So practically speaking, you're talking a big old PowerPoint here. So just give, give us a sense for like a two-week unit of work or something. How many slides might we be talking here? Probably about 70 to 80. Whoa. And what kind of things are on there? Like um, <laughs> examples you're so going to ask? Is everything on there? Well, okay, so yeah, um, this is, this part, let me go back a little bit. This is partly because what I'm doing at the moment is I'm making resources that lots of teachers can use of varying levels of experience. Ah, yes. So some teachers who are non-specialists teaching maths will use these. Some of them are very, very experienced. So I'm trying to put all sorts in there um, so that teachers can can or cannot or can choose to use or not use things depending on how confident they feel with the material. Um, so in, when I'm saying 70 or 80 slides, this includes loads of diagnostic questions in, at, at certain points and hinge questions and all that kind of thing. It includes um, ways of explaining things. It includes example problem pairs. It also includes the activities that I want the pupils to do in case the teachers don't have um, a, the capacity to do lots of printing. So it's, it's basically everything across, you know, two weeks across 70 or 80 slides. Nice. And what tends to be the first slide that you write there? What's, what's the first thing that you put down? Um, oh, that's a very good question. I think that depend, depends on the content. So I wrote one recently for the very start of year seven, which is a unit on place value. And we started with a bit of the history of number and the history of the number system and how we write and that kind of thing. Um, that whereas recent one I've done on the introduction to algebra, there, what did that begin with? I've only just finished writing it. That began with um, a, a kind of a, do you know, I've completely forgotten now. I'm not even going to try and pretend to. <laughs> well, what I'm interested <laughs> um, in. But it might be, ah, oh, no, I remember what I it started it. with. It started with a discussion question, which was prompting the pupils to think about, um, basically I had a set of, of examples um, of the form, like two times three plus eight times three, and uh, two times six plus eight times six, where it was all two lots of number plus eight lots of a number. Yes. And I wanted them to discuss these and say what they all had in common, looking at the fact that they all represented 10 lots of a number. And then nice. we kind of go into drawing that as an area model and then thinking about 2n plus 8n is 10n and all those kinds of things. So it started with a discussion question. And is the first thing that you, so that's obviously how your sequence of lessons would start. So is that the first thing you write as well when you're putting together this PowerPoint? Do you start your writing where your lessons would start? Or do you have like, an end question in mind that you want the kids to get to and perhaps that's the first thing you bang down in your PowerPoint, if that makes sense. 
these days I start by thinking about um, the kind of the broad route I want to take through what we're trying to learn first. So let me stick with this algebra one, for instance. I wanted to start with this idea of the structure. Tony Gardner calls it the uh, structure of arithmetic or structural arithmetic. So I wanted to start with that. Um, and then I wanted to look at how we use that to write. It's kind of to motivate writing expressions as a generalization of um, numerical patterns. Um, and then I wanted to move on to a bit more work in expressions in more depth. And we, we're using algebra tiles and what we're making. So linking into explaining this variable X tile, which is a new thing to them. Um, and then I wanted to move on to substitution as like a specific instance. So, so if you imagine the X tile kind of varies, we can kind of fix it a particular number and work out what the value of the expression would be there. And what happens if we then fix it at a different number? What's the value of the expression then? So that was substitution. Then I wanted to move on to solving an equation, which is where imagine this tile is moving and then all of a sudden we fix it there and we know that the value of the expression is nine. That gives us our equation. Now we can work backwards and find what the value of the tile is. So it's all in it. it's just an introduction to algebra, very kind of informal. But um, I start with that overview of where I want it to go. And then I go a bit into a bit more detail into each section and think about um, what I, what do I think would be the best way to explain this? How can I link it to what the pupils already know so that it doesn't seem to just kind of poof appear out of the thin air? Um, and then what kinds of tasks and activities will we do to focus attention in the right places? Got it. Fantastic. So it kind of starts as an overview and then drills on down into each of the sections. Perfect. And then as I go through, sometimes I go, oh, actually, I'm going to switch that around now. But that kind of happens as you go along. That's great. Now, this this has been a big change for me because maybe similar to you, Gemma, for many, many years, I planned on a very kind of lesson by lesson basis. But I think to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit, there are a few potential pros of doing it lesson by lesson. So I'm interested in your take on this. So I guess you could make the argument that maybe you're a little, you could fall into the trap of being a little less responsive if you've got everything planned out. So let's say, well, what happens in this case? You do your lesson on algebra and it doesn't go quite how you anticipated it. The kids are getting the hinge questions wrong and so on and so forth. Is, there, is it then a case that after that lesson you're adapting that PowerPoint? How does that work in terms of being responsive from lesson to lesson? So there's a couple of things there. Um, if I stick to the ones that I'm making at the moment as an example, I am deliberately putting in places uh, links to sets of questions. Um, so for instance, um, you can generate endless questions on uh, simplifying expressions from Johnny Hall's MathBot. So there's a link somewhere to these. And I know that if I need my pupils to be able to practice this a bit more, I can do that. Um, and there's links to, the, or to these kinds of things throughout. Um, so the point when I when I said before that I, I go through the PowerPoint, that was a really bad choice of phrase there because that's exactly not what's happening, because what I'm doing is um, asking questions as I go along and then responding to them. And of course, I have the benefit of lots of experience. So I know that if my pupils are stuck, I can generally figure out what to do on the fly. Um, the reason I've made these so long is because I know that some of some teachers will not have that level of experience yet. So I want them to have plenty of um, stuff and plenty of activities there for them to do. Um, if, if they're not able to make it up as they go along. That makes perfect sense. So, yeah, I was gonna say, so I would say that I think by having it so well planned and so well structured, I'm better able to respond because I've got time to think about those things instead. Got it, got it. And um, my other question is often lessons have 
kind of key features in there. So a do now would be a classic. A lot of teachers would always start their lesson either with retrieval uh, questions with the last lesson last week or whatever it may be and so on. Um, how does that fit into your model if you essentially don't really know or, or care all that much where one lesson starts and one lesson ends? How does that work? Well, that's one of those things you then have to do as you're going along. So wherever you've got to um, at the end of a particular period, if your school says you must start every lesson with this kind of retrieval do now starter, you make sure that you put the relevant kinds of questions into that. It might be that you want to practice something that they, they just need a bit more practice on because you've identified it from hinge questions that you've used previously. Or it might be something that you know is going to help with what's coming up that you just want to refresh their minds on. But that's where you have to, I think, you shouldn't be planning a long time in advance because that's the that's all to do with responding if you want it to be effective it needs to be reactive to what's actually happening in the classroom i see so there's opportunities although you've got your kind of general overview all play lined out lined out there's that expectation that you're going to be slotting in things as and when when appropriate absolutely yeah so it's definitely not here is you know the next two weeks worth of work this is absolutely everything you will need because that's kind of the opposite of what i want to achieve in the classroom but what it is is here's the um here's kind of the majority of what you're going to need use this as your starting point and make it work really well for the people you've got in front of you got it right let, let me put you in the shoes of um, a novice teacher who doesn't have Gemma Sherwood planning out this incredible outline of a lesson and so on and so forth but they want to do this they want to break the cycle that perhaps me and you have, have been in where they're planning lesson by lesson and so on and so forth so let's say it's a Sunday evening or whatever they sit down they know they've got two, a two-week unit on fractions to teach or whatever and this could be non-maths it could be any subject any advice on, on how they start because it's quite overwhelming isn't it thinking oh my gosh I've, I've five lessons six lessons or whatever material where would a novice teacher start with this Gemma do you think so there's two scenarios I can think of first of all if you've got somebody in your department who you think you could talk to who is more experienced and who you know would be willing to kind of get involved in such a project definitely do it go and pick their brains um, and, and get their help on it if you don't have anybody like that I think I would probably start by working um, with my first lesson and then adapting to it and putting these resources together as I go along into one long thing and at the very end of it stop and look back and reflect and go how well did that work how well did the first bit work related to the second was there something I could have done between those lessons that would have helped though that little group of pupils over there that didn't get this thing um, but it's about the reflection because with the reflection then comes the fact that you can adapt it and make it better ready for next time but because you've then got the initial sequence and you reflected on it so then next time you teach it you can just iterate it and improve it a bit more Got it. Final question on this, general. unless there's anything you want to add. It's a little bit of a bonus question, going off on a bit of a tangent here. Whilst we're talking about do-nows, where do you stand on that? Are you, if you were midway through some fluency practice or something like that and the bell went, would you start the next lesson just cracking on with that fluency practice or do you have a definite kind of starting point to your lesson, whether it's a do-now or, or something else? I think that's hugely dependent on the context in the school. So, it may be that you're in a school where you need maybe the pupils have come from PE and they've come a long way and they need something just to settle them and you know that this kind of routine works really well because they know what's expected of them then great then then do it if you know that they're just going to come and they're going to crack on with whatever you ask them to do I don't see the need to necessarily do something like that at the start of every lesson but I'm going to kind of totally pull back by and be non-committal there and say it really does depend on context but I don't think that they should be done like as a kind of a blanket rule at the start of every lesson got it fantastic stuff right Gemma 
What's your second tip you've got for us? Right, okay. So this one is doing maths is not the same as teaching maths. Oh, I like it. Again, another good clickbait headline, that Gemma. That's good for the viewing figures, that. Right, tell me a bit more about that. Um, I started by trying to think whether or not this is actually a kind of non-maths specific type thing. Um, now, other people watching this of other subjects might just laugh me off the screen now, but I was thinking things like writing an essay is not the same as teaching children to write an essay. Nice. Um, or let's say in science, doing a scientific experiment is not the same as teaching children to do a scientific yeah, experiment. I like it, yeah. And yeah. I think by thinking it in those ways, that helped me to think a bit more clearly about what I mean in a maths con context. Because I think um, I'm particularly guilty of this, is when I started teaching, I had my favourite ways of doing things, my favourite methods, my favourite algorithms. And I naively thought that if I just showed pupils what these algorithms were and showed them what the steps were that they would also then learn how to do these things and obviously you know years of experience have shown me that that's not necessarily the case and there are pupils who will make sense of it as we go along and that's great but I think they are make sen making sense of it despite my teaching not because of my teaching so what I'm particularly more interested in now is the pupils who don't make sense of things straight away because that's where the challenge lies and that's where it's 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 beholden to me to make sure that I'm actually teaching something really well. So just because I show pupils the steps of solving an equation doesn't mean I've taught them to solve equations. It doesn't mean they understand what an equation is. It doesn't mean they understand what, what they're actually doing when they solve an equation. Um, and as well, if I have different methods for different things, then it kind of presents maths to my pupils, however unintentionally, it presents it to them as this kind of hodgepodge of stuff that they've got to memorise. And if they're the kind of pupils who struggle to make sense of it straight away and struggle to make the connections, that's where you get comments like, oh, I've just got to learn this bit now and it doesn't make sense to me and, oh, there's so much to memorise in maths and those kinds of things. And that means I've not done my job as well as I could have done it. This is interesting. So, so how, how do you, how do we kind of break that cycle, Jim? Because I've, I've definitely fallen into into this trap myself. What what are some of the practical things that, that you yourself do to, to avoid falling into this trap? There's the question, and that's like the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, so this is the one where I'll probably watch this back in a few years' time and go, "You were talking absolute yeah. nonsense." But I think at the moment, I think it's about um, creating coherence, and coherence is the thing I'm really focused on at the moment. Um, so for me, uh, in the materials I'm designing, we have a core or a key number of representations, for instance, that we are weaving throughout the curriculum. And so the, the, I've mentioned them already, so I'll stick with this with the example of algebra tiles. So uh, the area model in algebra tiles is built in from multiplying um, and looking at distributivity and those kinds of things with multiplying, then through to using them for simplifying expressions. Um, before that, sorry, comes positive and negative um, integers. Um, and then weaving it on into area models with the tiles for um, expanding and factorising brackets. And then it goes all the way up through to things like completing the square and into A level, you could do it for polynomial division with that, with, with a grid method, for instance. So. For me, I'm not saying that that is the best way to teach these things, but what I'm saying is if I have it as a constant or a coherent yeah. way that goes through everything, then every time I've got to teach a new concept, I'm just adding kind of an extra layer of complexity to something that my pupils are already familiar with. And that, I think, is more likely to make it have meaning for more pupils. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Does, does it mean, Gemma, that 
sometimes things may seem a lot a little slower or less efficient to teach because you're you're trying to not just teach the concept but also get the kids familiar with as you say say algebra tasks like that solving equations is a classic right because we all know real quick ways you can get kids to solve some amazing looking equations but the problem is those methods don't scale because as soon as you then get yeah. into quadratics then the whole world falls apart and you have to teach something else yeah. so it feels to me like there's it's definitely the right thing to do but teachers and the kids need to be aware that there might be um, I've spoken about this in a previous t tips for teachers video this this kind of valley of latent potential where initially there's a bit of a dip in short-term kind of performance and progress because you're trying to get to grips with something that's perhaps not as efficient a tool for doing that specific job but we know that this tool has got these kind of long-term benefits does, does that make any kind of sense at all absolutely and i completely agree and i would much rather spend three weeks on um, operations with directed numbers early on in the knowledge that then everything we've embedded about that I can then apply to um, simplifying algebraic expressions and it's just a tiny step up rather than being this whole new completely unusual thing and all the pupils have then got to see is that oh now we can do the same thing but with some unknown numbers but actually everything else we're doing is exactly the same um, and the gains then become quicker as you go yes. on through. That's lovely. A final question on this one, Gemma. Again, trying to play devil's advocate a little bit. Is there, is there a danger that if we have these consistent representations and models, which I, you know, hands up, I'm a big, big fan of, that we, we fall victim to having less variety in methods and, and kids may have these lots of different approaches that they want to use, but we're actually saying, no, 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 actually, we're going to use this one because we believe this is the best. Is, is there a conflict there? Is, is that a problem or not? So... Um... First of all, I think the kind of traditional situation that we found ourselves in, where we have lots of different methods for different things, I don't think it's too harsh to say it hasn't worked for a huge number of pupils. Um, for a huge number of pupils, because if you know, if we're saying that um, there's a massive number of pupils in this country who don't get above a grade four at GCSE or, you know, don't even get above a grade seven at GCSE. Yeah. That's a huge number of kids who don't really understand yeah. a lot of maths after a long, long time of studying it. So what we've done so far as a collective has been ineffective for too many pupils. So um, if you're saying that variety is important, then I think you've got to justify that um, this variety is good for the pupils who find things difficult. Now, I have no issue with um, saying, right, we're going to do these consistent methods because we are going to make sure that we have a coherence of a curriculum for our pupils in our, in our school. Um, but if you have pupils who really can't get their heads around this, I have no problem with teachers having other things, you know, in their arsenal in order to help them explain things. But what I don't want is the default position to be everybody just throws whichever method they want yes. at the pupils because that's ultimately, I believe, going to make it too hard for too many pupils as they go through. And we all know that our pupils reach a ceiling and I feel like at the moment, and this is based on quite a few years of experience doing this now, I feel like at the moment that fewer of our pupils will, uh, or more of our pupils will kind of push the ceiling higher by yes. taking a more consistent approach. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've, I've wrestled with this for a long time. So um, I assume you as well be a big fan of Joe Morgan's um, Compendium of Mathematical Methods book. And I have a read through that and think, whoa, there's about 10 different methods for finding highest common factor and lowest common multiple that I've never even considered. And best case scenario, 
that's really good because she can say, right, we're going to solve this problem this way. But you know what? There are five other different ways that we can use. And let's spot what's the same, what's different, what are the connections and so on. And I think for some students, that's really, really powerful because they start to see different connections and so on. But as you've spoke there for other kids, it's really overwhelming, right, as well. And then maths becomes, right, what is the problem? So what, which one of those weird methods that I didn't really understand do I need to select to solve this problem? Whereas reducing the number of approaches by having these consistent, coherent models, I, I think for the majority of students is going to be the best thing. And then, as you say, there's always that opportunity if they're seeming to grasp things that then we can throw in these alternate methods, not just as a random thing, but to say what's the same, what's different, what's the connections and so on. Does that make sense? I absolutely love Joe's book and I think yeah. it's brilliant for teachers because it helps them to see how all these methods yeah, are essentially yeah, yeah. doing the same thing. Yes. Because actually there's not 20 odd methods of adding numbers. There is one method of yeah, adding yeah, and there's yeah. 20 different ways of presenting that's that method. Yes. Um, and so that's really helpful for teachers. But I think for us looking at it with our knowledge and our understanding of adding is brilliant. If you're going to though, if you're going to show lots of different methods to pupils who are still trying to cement their understanding of adding, I think that's that's cognitive overload there. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think it's helpful. But like you say, there will be pupils who who can explore that. And I think everything we do in a classroom, we need to do very consciously and very carefully. So if I if I have a group of pupils who I would like to show a different method to, because I would like to use that to illuminate um, something to do with this concept that we've been learning about, and I know that that would help them to make more sense of something, brilliant. But I have to make sure that it's kind of passed that litmus test, if you like, before I do it. Makes perfect sense. Fantastic. Right, Gemma, tip number three, please. Right, this is what you say matters. Good, I like it. Cryptic. Go on, tell me more. This is probably the worst one for me to say because I'm very, very waffly. Here we go. So, um, <laughs> you need to pick your words carefully. Um, it's very easy to get nervous in a classroom, whether you are novice or experienced. And when you get nervous, you waffle. You repeat things, you say things in a way that's not particularly clear. I'm deliberately trying to be very <laughs> clear. I like it, I like I'm it. very <laughs> conscious of it. <laughs> um, and that's not helpful because we have pupils, as we've said already, who are trying to learn something normally completely new and they need the explanations to be as clear and as uncluttered as possible if they're going to make sense of it quicker. Um, so I think I now believe that people, that maths teachers should be, or any teacher should be practicing their explanations, going away and thinking carefully about how how they're going to explain something, what vocabulary they're going to use, what, but not just that, what questions they're going to ask and when and why. Um, it, re it links back to what I said before about being a reflective practitioner. Uh, this was something that was taught to me on my PGC years ago by Dave Hewitt and Pat Perks, and they were constantly telling us you've got to be reflective you've got to look back at what you've done and when I was early on in my teaching I suppose I didn't really know what I was reflecting on because yeah. my own kind of schema of teaching maths was so limited and but you have to start the process so that it becomes embedded and so that it becomes internalized um, so I think that it's hugely important that we plan not only what we want the kids to do in our lessons but what we are going to say and how we're going to say it it's lovely that i um so a couple of things on this it was i don't know if again this may not have been true for you Gemma, but for many years it was the last well 
one, I never even thought about what I was going to say, so I'll just put that on the table now. I just kind of winged that as I went went along. But even like the examples I was going to ask my kids to, that I was going to use for modelling, they were the last thing I would plan. My planning was all activity-driven, task-driven, and so on and so forth. So that's the first thing. Um, I completely 100% agree with you um, about the, the words we say. I'm, I waffle. I mean, you think you waffle, Gemma. I, I never shut up. It's like, why say things one way when you say it 58 times? And I just keep repeating, 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 and it's, it's too much for the kids how do you get better at this now you mentioned they're practicing are we literally talking here like in, in your bedroom or whatever like practicing how what you how you're going to talk kids through an example or how you're going to introduce are we is, is that the best way you find to to do this at least initially i think initially yeah writing down the key things that you want to say so that you're you're conscious of them so that you're aware of them but then also, it's it's cringeworthy, but if you stand in front of a mirror nice. and practice the way you're going to explain something, you're able to watch yourself and you're able to yes. pick up on your irritating mannerisms. And <laughs> I, I had one uh, early in my second year of teaching. Uh, the school I was in had one of those classrooms where they would video you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and so they gave me this DVD and they said, go away and watch this. And I said, okay, after every third word, I think, okay. <laughs> So now we're going to do this, okay? So, okay. And by the end of watching this video, I just wanted to shoot myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was so good because I didn't know that I did it. Yes. Um, so I think it's really, I think it's, 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 it's cringeworthy and potentially very frustrating. But if you want to get better at communicating, it's actually a very important thing to do. See, it's interesting that we've uh, we've had on the on my Mr. Bart Maths podcast um, a couple of times teachers who who use booklets in their lessons. So Danny Quinn's been on Naveen and so on, and a lot of people criticise booklets for many reasons. But uh, one thing there, and it kind of fits into this mold of kind of in, inverted commas the scripted lesson. But if you have a really well thought through explanation that's in bullet point form, and as you say, removes all the clutter and a teacher reads out that explanation, there's a lot to be said for that, isn't there? Particularly if you're a novice teacher and you find it hard to, to, to get that explanation concise and clear and the right amount of information without overwhelming. Having a kind of script that you perhaps don't stand in front of the kids and read out, but that you've rehearsed yourself that an experienced teacher has helped you with, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. What, what, what do you think? Absolutely. And at the very least, some key words and key phrases yeah, yeah, that, you know, yeah. I absolutely yes. must say this and I absolutely must emphasize this because like we said before, when you stood in front of your classroom, it's easy to get distracted yeah. by things. It's easy to get nervous. It's easy to forget stuff because it's just the way our brains work, isn't it? So if you have these things that you know are the absolute musts that you want to get across and you've practiced them, you're less likely to forget these things. Um, what it's what it means of course is the more you do it the less you have to rely on that yeah so yes. i i'm i'm relatively confident now that i could walk into a classroom just like that and i could give a pretty strong explanation on pretty much anything um across 11 to 18 maths but that's because i've done it for however many years um but it's taken that kind of conscious repetition and reflection and practice to get to that point I'm going to chuck some, I don't know if this is 
a good idea or the worst idea. So I'm just going to, I'm going to run it by you and see what see what you think of this, Gemma. Right. So whenever remote teaching was happening, I did a series of podcasts with people who were teaching from home and um, just their, their tips and so on. And Adam Boxer uh, was was on there, and he was saying how he was creating a lot of videos for Froke National um, National Academy at the time. And he said his explanations in those videos were far better than any explanations he would do in the classroom for the very reason you're speaking about there, because he could just focus. All The only thing he was thinking about was his explanation, because he was recording it into a microphone and, and a screen. So it got me thinking, and as I say, this is, this is where the worst idea you've ever heard comes into play. What's the argument against, let's say that you, you're, you're going to teach solving equations, and you at home have written out this, essentially a script, and you've recorded yourself explaining it, a microphone, screen, maybe you've used the tablet or whatever. It's, you've, got to, you've got it perfect. You've got this example, this explanation perfect. What's the argument against you pre-recording that? You play it in the classroom for your kids and you're there kind of on hand. If the kids are stuck, they can put their hand up. You can just kind of have a whisper to them. You're, you get to put your full attention onto your kids whilst your kind of virtual self is giving this crystal clear explanation. Where's the flaw in that if, if there is a flaw? Uh, okay, it's not interactive enough and there is a huge difference between uh, teaching something on a video at, or explaining something on a video, which is more akin to a lecture yeah. uh, than, and uh, there's a huge difference between that and teaching something in a classroom. Teaching something in a classroom relies on um, being able to have those very human interactions, being able to respond to cues, non-verbal cues as well. Um, so for me, that would be suboptimal because I'm not able to interact with what happens as I go along. But if I've already thought really carefully about how I want to explain something, then I've got my own kind of brain space freed up to actually do the, to actually respond and to and to to question in the right places and to go, you're not paying attention, come on, and all of those things, because I am more confident in in the kind of the core substance of, of what I'm doing and saying. Got it. Suboptimal is a nice way to sum up that idea, Gemma. That was nice. I like that. That's perfect. <laughs> and oh. there was something else on that as well. And that was that um, when I said what you say matters, I think it's also important to, um, to, to be aware of the things that you want pupils to internalise as well. So there will be certain phrases and concepts that when I'm teaching, I want my pupils to associate with certain ideas. So... Um, when I don't know, let's say when we're solving equations, I want them to know that the second they see an equation and the word solve, that they're going to be thinking about balancing. So I will be saying, and what are we going to do now? And I'll be all the pupils to go balance and getting them to repeat these things over and over again, because they're more likely to internalize something if they're rehearsing it as well. Yes. So for me, when I say what you say matters, it's not only about the way I explain something, but it's about the, the repetition that I build in for pupils and the opportunities I give for them to be able to actually vocalise things as well. Nice. Lovely stuff. Okay, Gemma, what's tip number four, please? Okay, it's kind of the converse. What you don't say matters. Oh, I like what you've done there. Okay, tell me more about this. Right, so um, two parts to this one. The first one is... Don't assume that something is obvious. It's very easy for us as ex as experts in mathematics to 
assume that what we think is obvious is obvious to our pupils. When we do that, we tend to not make things explicit. We tend to not say things. And then what happens is that we get a few lessons down the line and, you, and, you, and a pupil makes a mistake or does something and you go, that's obvious, you should know that. But they don't because I never actually made it clear. Yes. Because I just assumed that they would know this thing. Um, so if I don't say mind, something... It's, sorry, go on. Any examples spring to mind there that you can think of? I knew you were going to say that. Um, <laughs> so, okay. So, I a, a couple of years ago, I was teaching a lesson on um, differentiation with Year 12. And we had expressions where we... They were, they were algebraic fraction type expressions where we had something like x squared plus 3x on the numerator and x on the denominator. Yep. Something like that. Um and I said to them, it was something along the lines of, right, off we go then, we've done loads of differentiation, let's have a go at this one now. And they all started to do really weird things like differentiating the polynomial on the top and then differentiating the polynomial, yep. the polynomial on the bottom and keeping it in a fraction. Um, and I said, and I remember stopping at one point, going over to one pupil and stopping it, stopping her and going, why are you doing that? And she said, well, because you've, you've told us to differentiate like this. And I said, no, but this is this is a different type of function um and i suddenly realized that i hadn't actually explained to them that we need to split this up into yeah. separate terms and then differentiate differentiate each term separately so that was completely on me because i just assumed that they would know they had to do this yes this is a, i would like to say this is a long time ago it is a long time ago <laughs> by the way um but this is a perfect example of one of those things where you, you look back and you go oh, obviously that's my yes. fault because i didn't explain that to you that's a really good example. So if you don't say something, it matters. That's really good. And I, I know I'm interrupting you because I know you have a second part to this. But just, just on this, um, do you think that comes down to, oh, well, a lot of that can be solved just by the choice of examples that you use? Because I, I, I fall foul of this all the time. And to use your differentiation was a great one there. If you're really careful about your selection of examples, and particularly kind of boundary examples, things that right on the edge of either fits into the concept or doesn't, then it solves quite a few of these kind of curse of knowledge problems because you're you're forcing the kids to attend to a wider variety of examples so they start to make those connections a bit, a bit clearer. Do you reckon examples are the key to this? Um, yes and no. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know me too well. Um, because we can never um, give examples for every single possible misconception yeah, our pupil's yeah. going to come across. Yeah. So... I think what we need to do is uh, is direct our examples towards the most common things and what we might perhaps term the most important ideas to communicate. And then as we go through, there are going to be times where something else crops up and you're going to have to address it there and then, but you're never going to be able to predict all of those things. So what I wouldn't want to do is say yes, because of what I would because an unintended consequence of that might be that kind of lessons, people's lessons turn into just example after yeah. example after example. And look how this one's a bit different. Look on how that one's a bit different. But actually, when our pupils start to get more fluent in the way the mathematics is working, whatever, we, whatever bit we're doing, they are able to deduce these things for themselves in yes. a lot of cases. And that's okay as well. And, and I would go further and say that's okay. That's really important that they start to kind of apply what they've learned in unusual contexts, hugely important. But when there are more obvious things, really important things that you want to make sure that the pupils absolutely are aware of, yes, definitely highlight it in an example. Got it. What, what was your other thing you were going to say about this tip, Gemma, before I cut you off? 
Oh, well, only just in the context of what you don't say matters. That also goes towards creating the culture you want in your classroom. So everything you do as the teacher will contribute either um, intentionally or unintentionally to the culture in your classroom. So your body language, the care you show to your pupils, the attention you show them by asking them questions about what they do. John Mason wrote a lovely chapter in a book a while ago, and I'll send you, I'll send you the link, Craig, um, about questioning and how you show care to pupils through questioning and show that you value their thinking. And all those things, although they're not explicitly about the kind of the uh, maybe like a utilitarian aim of teaching mathematics what they're about is showing pupils that um, their thinking is valued and their contribution is valued um, and, and 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 that you have high expectations of them um, and, and and it helps to communicate what you expect a, a mathematics classroom to look like that's lovely that it's, you just made me made me think off top of top of my head and again thoughts off the top of my head are always high risk because they've, they've not been processed at all so this will be suboptimal as well general I'll, I'll warn you in advance now there's been a lot of chat on the tips for teachers podcast so far about use of mini whiteboards and i've recorded a few videos on this and so on I, just you saying that's made me think that one of the big advantages of mini whiteboards that i don't think i've ever heard before is that it communicates to the kids that every answer matters whereas you know you could if i if i'm teaching and i just ask you that you a question and joe morgan sat in the class you might be thinking well he's only bothered about Gemma's answer he's not really concerned about mine whereas if the kids are answering if every child's answering every question and showing you on the mini whiteboard even if you don't pick up on their answer you're at least communicating that you value their response if that makes sense and i don't often hear that mentioned Absolutely. In, in the context of mini whiteboards it's it, i think it's a, this I, I think i mentioned it earlier about being uh, trying to be very conscious about everything you do in the classroom but understanding that every single action of yours will have an effect yes so you want to make sure that your actions communicate that every pupil is important, that every pupil's thinking is important, and that you expect every pupil to think hard and that you expect that every pupil to work hard. And what you don't say is also communicating all of these things. Yes, that's lovely. Love that one. All right, Gemma, fifth and final tip, please. Right. Teach what you mean to teach. You've really thought through these, these titles. I like this. Right, tell me about this one. Okay, so um, I'm going to illustrate this one with an example. A few years ago, I was watching somebody teach a lesson on velocity time graphs, and they were teaching the idea that if you find the gradient of a line, it will give you the acceleration. And the it, the teacher explained this idea, and they worked through an example, and they got to the point where it was something like acceleration equals six divided by three, and Craig, what's six divided by three? And the pupil said two, and he said, great, you've got it. And <laughs> this, this then happened yeah. over and over and over again. And I spoke to the teacher at the end of the lesson, um, and I just said, I wanna point something out to you. Every single question in the 10 minutes that I watched was around mental arithmetic. And the only things the pupils had to answer was mental arithmetic. Do you know that they understand, understood that the gradient of the line is the acceleration? Or do you know that they knew they know, they know their division facts? And that was, it was the first time I'd ever noticed it. And then I saw it more and more. Yes. And then I was aware that I did it yes. as well. Yeah. And I suddenly realized that we, I think it's very easy to ask pupils the kind of the simple end bit of the question, the mental arithmetic, because we know they know it. And maybe it's because we want them to feel successful yes. and we want them, we want to be able to go, yeah, well done. Yeah, yeah. 
But actually, if we think about what we know from cognitive science, we know that what pupils think about are the things they're going to remember. And if we can prompt more pupils to be thinking hard for more time yes. about the key thing we're trying to teach them, they're more likely to remember that thing. So if we have one or two pupils thinking about mental arithmetic and not that acceleration yeah. is the gradient of the line, we are less likely to have our pupils remembering that concept. Oh, it's great, this Gemma. I've, I've, I've done this tons and tons of times. For the exact reason you say, is because the kids feel great and you, you can con yourself into thinking, what a great explanation I've done here of this complex thing. Because the kids, it's like the punchline to it. Six divided yeah. by three is two. Oh, brilliant, they've understood calculus or whatever. It's terrible. But I'll tell you the interesting thing about this. A lot of focus on kind of classroom techniques is based around formative assessment, check for understanding, use mini whiteboards, diagnostic questions, whatever it is. But the point you're making there, I think anyway, what I've taken from it is you've got to be careful what understanding you're checking for. So you can imagine you do the lesson on grading that you've described there on velocity time graphs and the diagnostic question or the mini whiteboard check is, OK, so write down what the final gradient is. But if it's all just checking that they can do the six divided by three, you get a room full of mini whiteboards where everyone's nailed it. And you think, oh, I've done my formative assessment. I've checked everyone's understanding. Amazing stuff. But it's what understanding are you checking for is the key to it. And that, that feels quite, it's quite a complex skill, isn't it, for a teacher to, to, to get right, I think. It is one thing that I say to staff increasingly now, um, especially when I notice that they are they are more inclined to do this, is as a way of kind of trying to reduce it initially. As I say, I don't want you to ask a question unless it's about the very specific thing that you're teaching. So if you're teaching expanding brackets, for instance, I don't want you to ask any questions unless it's one actually about the expansion of that, bra that yes. bracket. Yes. Um, and everything else, you're, you've just got to say it. Yeah, that's lovely. Love that one. There's another part to it as well, um, and it, it's kind of very closely related, and that is that if you, let's pick the example of expanding brackets again. Um, if you are doing a kind of a, 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 a period of instruction in the classroom, and you've got this, this brackets that you want to expand, and you can see the people struggling, so you show them how to do the expansion, whichever method you've chosen, and you uh, then ask them questions about just the multiplying bit at the end, and let's imagine that you're kind of interspersing this example with all these questions. Oh, and, and what's five times three X, and what's two times, what's five times two here? you then have it kind of links to my, my my tip from earlier you then have the problem that you haven't given a clear explanation at any one point because your yes. your explanation of the process has been um punctuated with questions about mental arithmetic so the pupils who are able to make sense of the process have made sense of the process but the ones who couldn't haven't benefited from a really clear explanation from the teacher because it's been they've been distracted by all these questions going on that's interesting. So is the solution to that, and again, this this could be nonsense, is it if you get your prerequisite knowledge check right? Because that's when you can sort out all these bitty parts of it, right? So to take your expanding brackets, that's where you can check that they can multiply a term together. That's where you can check that they're fine with negative number arithmetic, all the things that they need to. That That's fine to be bitty that bit. And then when they come to do this new concept of expanding brackets, that's when you can be a bit more co coherent in your explanation because... The, the bitty bit should be familiar to them. You don't have to assess their understanding of that so they can focus on, on the whole narrative, if, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And then you once you've, you've explained it really clearly, you can use as much questioning and yeah, as much yeah. mini whiteboards as you want to see whether or not they can make yes. sense of this, whether or not they can replicate the process, whether or not, and then you go into kind of how they can reason about it in more depth and all those things that come afterwards. But you've got to make sure that you are focusing your 
let me let me go back a second um every question you ask will direct a pupil's attention at something yes. so you've got to make sure that you direct their attention at the thing you want them to learn not the mental arithmetic lovely lovely Gemma, they were five fantastic tips. So now it's over to you. What are you going to plug? What are you going to tell people about? First, start off with your book. Not enough people know about this. Tell us tell us about your book. <laughs> okay, so back in 2018, I wrote a book um, called How to Enhance Your Mathematics Subject Knowledge, Number and Algebra for Secondary Teachers, which is a beautifully short title. Um, it's... It, I, I did it because I've been working with lots of people, lots of people on a, a subject knowledge enhancement course at the time for quite a few years, and I wanted a book that teachers could pick up at any point in their career, but particularly at the start, yeah. and just kind of pick it up and put it down, and it would help them to deepen their knowledge on school level maths. So it takes things through everything that we would kind of consider 11 to 16 number and algebra, and it goes into loads of depth about it, gives them tips for the classroom, and it kind of, it's got quizzes in it to, to really kind of push the limits of their understanding of these ideas. Uh, it talks about where it goes next, be it at A level or beyond, and um, brings in elements of history of maths that are relevant to it as well. So the whole point was not to necessarily, not to specifically think about pedagogy, but to think about the mathematics at school level and how you can deepen your knowledge of it. Brilliant. It's a fantastic book. Um, anything else you want to direct listeners to or to be aware of? I, I see on Twitter, you're talking a lot about this kind of curriculum design, the, the work that you're doing. And I saw a tweet saying it's going to be freely available later later on in the year. Is that, is that true? Is that a world exclusive? <laughs> Do you know what? Let's make it a world exclusive, Craig. Let's. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed with this idea of a coherent curriculum yeah. at the moment. Uh, so there are multiple ways of doing this. So I have picked my way of doing it and I am making the resources that go from year seven all the way through to year 11. And we've got some schools at the moment in our trust that are trialling the resources with year seven and they'll eventually be the ones that kind of take it through all five years. And I'm hoping that hope, before the summer holiday, I want to say, I'll be able to kind of go, here's the whole of the year seven resources for people. Wow. And it's going to be completely freely available. Eventually it will be five years and it will be all there for anybody to access. Um, it will be booklets full of all the tasks and activities wow. and these associated uh, unit long PowerPoints that I was talking about earlier. That is a world exclusive gem. What, what ordering have you gone for? Is this your bespoke ordering or have you used NCTM, a non-statutory it's, it's It's kind of bespoke. So it's based on ordering that I have used historically when I was head of maths, but kind of the lessons that I learned from that. So changes have been made from that. So it's kind of comes from a tried and tested base, yeah. but then I've tried to improve upon it there. Um, we are making things. So what we're doing is we, we, it's a bit, it's a kind of combination of curation and making things from yep. scratch. So where there are existing activities or tasks that I think are high quality and fit the brief, so fits the, the, the path that we've chosen yes. to take through, then we're using those with obviously with people's permission. And then if not, we are creating the tasks and activities to fit it as well. Um, and the sequencing is kind of broadly based on um, the ideas of embedding the most important things at the beginning, the most important ideas around number yes. and then going out into algebra. Um, there's all, I mean, I could talk to you about this for hours, so I'm not going to do that now, but uh, we've, we've made it so that there is flexibility in it as well. So certain units are absolute prerequisites to others because the one thing I will say is what I'm really excited about is the fact that when things are prerequisites to others, we deliberately weave the content in from yeah, previous yeah. units so that 
um, the practice, to use Dave Hewitt's term, the practice um, of, of one skill becomes subordinate to the practice of another skill. Um, so yeah, the, the, there's kind of flexibility in terms of how you can move certain units around, certain ones have to go in particular orders, but yeah, eventually it'll be five year, fully resourced, coherent curriculum, A, not the coherent curriculum, but A, coherent curriculum. And it's worth, if people don't already follow you on Twitter, because often you're chucking out ideas at this stage while you're creating and getting feedback from people and examples and stuff, it's, it's, it's dead exciting. Anything else to plug, Gemma? Um, not yet. Ask me that in a few months, Craig. Okay, I'll come back for that. All right, well, Gemma Sherwood, it's always a pleasure speaking to you, and it definitely has been today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Craig. Bye.